Welcome to Seize the GM. I'm your host, Zended. I am your co-host, Jules. And I'm Garda Moje. Have you ever had a great idea for a campaign? Do you have a group of friends who want to play an RPG, but you have no one to run it? Do you want to see what the world is like behind the GM screen instead of in front of it? Well, we're here to help you do just that. Each week, the three of us will be discussing various GMing topics, terminology, maps, atmosphere, world building, you name it. So sit back and relax. Let us help you. Improve your art of GMing. One show at a time. Welcome back to another episode of Seize the GM. It's not just another episode. It is a special episode. We are very happy in 2020 to have this interview and, you know, kind of beginning of a review of what I think is a really wonderful and fun game that is not only a modern game, but that kind of threads the needle between uh, old school grognard, hi, raise your hand, uh, (laughs) fun and agency and really kind of the deep questions that a lot of modern games like to pose. That is true. That is very true. And the game that we're going to be actually, I know. And the game that we're actually going to be talking about is Eclipse Phase 2nd Edition. And with us today, we have Rob Boyle. Hello. Hey, so... Now, I, All right, I, listeners, I say, listeners, <laughs> if you don't know, Rob is one of the founders of Posthuman Studios that puts out Eclipse Phase. If you have not gotten to see Eclipse Phase yet, this is going to be your perfect chance to step into it. And there's a new core rulebook and edition coming out. And if you like immersive worlds, if you like challenging and interesting themes for the players and the GMs, and you like a book that comes with a point of view, we have a treat. <laughs> that, that's an understatement. Because it has all of those things and more. So, I'm just going to dive right in. Now, I've known Rob for many years now. <laughs> sure. Um, so... Now, originally, you guys did first edition what? 2009. 2009. Yep. So, like 11 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, what gave you guys the idea to have the game feel more accessible for people that may not have been around since that first edition? Uh, well, so I, the game was definitely a little bit on the crunchy side and, uh, there was a couple mechanical issues in the game that made it kind of excessively crunchy. Uh, one being the resleeving. Uh, so in Eclipse says you can, uh, you can switch bodies like an alter carbon. You can resleeve into a new morph. Um, and, uh, in the old, in the first edition mechanics, it kind of required you to recalculate your skills when you did that. Um, which we tried to make it easy in a few different ways. Like we put out like modifier cards and stuff like that, uh, for that sort of thing. Um, but it was still a little bit of a, of a pain. Um, 
So, and that's a core element of the game. And, uh, and we didn't want that to be uh, something that held people back from resleeving. Uh, we wanted to have a game that encouraged people to do that. Um, so that was one thing that we definitely looked at for the new edition was uh, making resleeving a much easier process. Um, well, and along that lines, you've never shied away from Eclipse Phase being a pretty crunchy game. And I say one of the things I, I actually was impressed with was your upfront admission of that in the second ed core rulebook going, hey, look, this we know. This isn't exactly the easiest thing to actually do or wrap your head around, but here's how to get into it. Yeah. Did you find that that crunch in the second edition, that that uh, kind of richness of system and not just richness of setting, which is a whole different conversation, was something that helped you find a – in on your second edition instead of just putting out a book but finding where it would make a difference uh like figuring out how to simplify it a little bit you mean well whether you thought it was simplified or the accessibility what what about the rules gave you a good in to change or at least give people a different way to look at it um so the first thing would have been character creation uh because and it's true like you know, I've been gaming forever, and I have a soft spot for crunchy games. Um, and I know the trend is definitely towards more lighter story games this way, but uh, but I still prefer like I like a little bit of a, a middle ground there. Um, uh, so when we did first edition, like the character creation was a uh, it was a uh, point by system, and we gave you a whole bunch of points, so it was very easy to kind of customize your character in detail. Uh, but really, that kind of ends up being too many options for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so one of the things we did uh, with the first edition was we put out a book called Transhuman that was a kind of a player's guide, and it had some uh, had two alternate character creation systems in it, one of which was a, uh, a package buy system for your skills and kind of your backgrounds and stuff, and one of which was a random life path kind of system, kind of like Traveler style. You could die during character creation and stuff yeah. like that. But <laughs> like Traveler. Well, you have uh, to have that, that call back to if you're going to do life paths. You kind of have to have that call back there. Yeah, you really do. All right, um, if you're listening along and died in character creation, we want to know because <laughs> – I have Traveler. Yeah, I've died. Zen has. <laughs> yeah. If you've had that experience in Traveler or another game, let us, and more importantly, let Posthuman Studios know you appreciate that option from the game. <laughs> yeah. um, and both those went over really well. So when, uh, so that was definitely one of the things that we. That was one of the things I started with with first edition was taking that skill package system, and. Uh, you know, uh, rejiggering it for a second edition. We cut down the skill list a lot. We cut down the skills by about half. Um, and, uh, and it's what, still a pretty long list in second ed. Uh, it's like, I forget, 25 something. Yeah. Uh, skills like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's still a lot compared to some games, but, um, uh, one of the other things that we did too, uh, so science fiction games tend to be heavy on the gear and the and the shopping uh, that that goes with the gear, uh, but the shopping can really drag games down sometimes. Um, and 
so one of the things that one of the things we looked at when we redid the system was how to uh, eliminate some of the need for the the shopping and uh, to make that whole process a little bit simpler. Um, so like we have a new system for like part, it goes along with the resleeving that uh, it's a much simpler system in terms of assigning uh, morph points and gear points that kind of let you determine what your morphs and gear are. And we put together like these gear packages and we'll be expanding on those down the line. So uh, it's easy to just kind of like take the kind of package of gear that's relevant to your character and run with that uh, and maybe pick up a second one, depending on how many points you have. And, and so that makes things a lot simpler for getting all your stuff together. Um, well, and I think part of that, one of the things that impressed me was the way that the, the crunch and the rules played into some of the themes that you explored from a setting standpoint. And that question of a post-scarcity society seems to be reflected in the way the second edition addresses uh, a gear and, and that equipment in the sci-fi world. Yeah. Did you find that the second edition let you fine tune some of those narrative questions? And were there anything, was there anything you wanted to put in that second ed core book you didn't get the chance and that people listening along should be on the lookout for coming out soon? Um, so yeah, I think like, uh, addressing the whole issue of nanofabrication, uh, being able to print anything you need and it really just being a matter of time. And that's why we, uh, we had the whole complexity mechanic with gear, um, is that no matter how you're acquiring the gear, whether you're buying it with credits or whether you're using your reputation score in different social networks or whether you're printing it with a nanofaber, it all just relies on the complexity score. And that kind of simplified things so that no matter how you're going about getting your gear, it all kind of used the same system. Um, and, uh, and that fits really well with like, you know, if you have the time, you can pretty much get what you need depending on where you're at. Uh, like there might be some limitations, especially in the inner system where you actually do have to spend money to get the things you need as opposed to the outer system where stuff is more freely available. Um, and that, that leads to lots of questions like on how, uh, you know, how do GMs kind of keep a rein on gear and how do uh, players handle having this gear and what happens to their gear when they, re uh, when they ego cast and across the solar system and then have to like start over again, you know? Um, well, isn't that one of the challenges you wanted to put to the players as much as the GMs was with resleeving and with the, you know, accessibility of the gear that, I think in one point in the book, it, it says these are characters that in a lot of systems would be considered gods who default yeah. don't die, default have whatever they wouldn't think they need and can come back in a body better suited to what they need. Does that challenge element apply to the players? As I perceive it to apply as much as the players as the GM. What was your intent in the way you structured that? Let me put it that way. Uh, yeah, definitely. So like, uh, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to have players be less reliant on their gear. You know, like, uh, you know, when you, when you, if you're ego casting your mind across the solar system, you can't take all your gear with you. Um, but it's very easy to get the gear you need where you go. Um, and so I think, uh, having that ability to just, uh, or pushing people to kind of be less clutchy of their gear was something that we were going for a little bit, uh, with the rules so that, 
you know, you could easily drop what you had, go where you're going, get new stuff and, uh, encouraging people to be less, uh, less focused on the shopping and just getting what you need when you need it and kind of rolling with it that way, Um, (laughs) which is a way better way to do it anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Especially in a, well, especially because you have, for the most part, it's, there's no, you know, it, there's no worry about anything. Abundancy is there. It's just, and, and that's even one of the, the things is like, is it truly there or is it just a perception of it being there? Well, yeah, I mean, that's where it becomes fun. Like, especially if the GM puts you in scenarios where suddenly your, your resources are restricted. Like if you're on a remote outpost and the nanofabrics don't work, yeah. you know, or something and like, you know, now you have to scramble or, and the whole, the way the morph points work in the game where you determine the, uh, your resource of, uh, available to determine what morphs you can reset into, that's really up to the GM to assign. So the GM can kind of decide, well, for this mission, you're kind of like low on resources. You're kind of just relying on your own stuff. You don't really have any backing by anyone and you're going somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so your morphs are going to be really restricted. The, the options for what you can find are restricted and you may not be able to get anything super powerful. Whereas other missions, especially if it's like something you're throwing the players into something that's really combat intensive or just like a lot of action, you can throw, give them more resources and say you have a powerful patron this time and then they have more options available. So it's really customizable for the GM that way. And then the players kind of have to adjust to that situation you know sometimes they might be scrambling and have to do have to make do with what they have other times you know it, they're going to be have super abundant whatever they need yeah and that fits that fits the setting you know oh yeah <laughs> oh yes it does <laughs> well and i think the setting is something that's also worth discussing uh, oh. for me i came in having not played first ed and so that was my first kind of exposure to the setting it is incredibly rich it is what zen would say is what i would try to be doing if i was writing my own game what are your in this setting we've got a transhuman post-apocalyptic future in the solar system where humanity is struggling to make sure it survives in the aftermath of an ai fueled war that leaves humanity kind of questioning its place in the universe and finding gates that can potentially take it to other solar systems so what is your favorite part of that setting what is your theme that you enjoy playing the most out of there because it has a dozen easily (laughs) <laughs> that's true oh god it's hard uh i mean uh there's probably a few uh if i had to pick three i would probably pick uh one just the whole concept of resleeving and being able to have that that morphological freedom to take on any kind of body you want a body of any uh sex of any uh you can choose biological or synthetic. You can use uplifted animals. And that kind of being able to try different. I'm fun as hell. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know it might freak some people out, but I think that would be something to be cool to explore. So I love that aspect of the game. Uh, the second thing I like to kind of go along with that is I do really like delving into uh, uplifts and, and AIs. Uh, a little more uplifts. 
because they think the concept of bringing other species and elevating them up to human levels of sapience uh, is pretty interesting. And uh, that whole issue of, uh, you know, is that an ethical thing to do um, or is it an ethical thing not to do? Uh, is uh, that who kind of has control over the direction that kind of uplifting process takes. And once they, once they are uplifted, like how do they control their own destiny from that point? And are they assimilated into transhuman society or do they get to kind of, uh, go and, you know, explore it their out. own potential? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I really like that aspect of the game too. And then, uh, the third is all the, uh, frankly, all the anarchist stuff being an anarchist myself. I like that kind of exploration of, uh, uh, not hierarchical, you know, near, uh, societies that have eliminated capitalism and find other ways to function uh they try to eliminate power dynamics and stuff like that um and uh, we were able to put that in the setting and and i enjoy that a lot i i will go ahead and you know tell you one of the few kind of knocks i had on my review mm-hmm. was you talk about in, in the book itself you talk about you know, being an anarchist, being a transhuman, wanting to look at the challenges to some of those philosophies. Um, how can mm-hmm. a welfare state that promises bodies for all keep up with its population's needs when it has more people than it can employ and those issues? But I don't know if the core rule book set up those challenges as well. And so that's something I hope comes up in future books. I think that's a good question to ask. I think that having a point of view is good. And I also think asking those questions is good. I think yeah. that, yeah, the core book itself may not have gotten to be as, as rich in asking all of the questions. Sure. I mean, if we, if <laughs> There's we a thing covered, called page count. Have, <laughs> <laughs> there is. <laughs> and we have covered some of this stuff elsewhere, although that is a criticism we've gotten with some, like, uh, with our, how we, uh, in the, we have a Rimward book that talks about a lot of that stuff in the outer system. And, um, and we got a little bit of criticism of that with that, our depiction of anarchists and autonomous in the outer system as well. And, and partly it is due to constraints because, uh, we are all, we all know what it's like to live under capitalism. You know, we're very familiar with it, but none of us really know what it's going to be like to live under an actual, in an anarchist society or other type of autonomous society. So we, we have felt the need to devote a lot of work out to just how that would function, uh, to explain, you know, how the, you know, how, how it works to deal with reputation networks in different collectives, or if you're on an extropian habitat, how you're dealing with the different, like, uh, private contracts for everything. And, uh, and so we've had to devote a lot of attention to that. And we could probably use to devote more ish, more, word count to the problems and we probably will do that in the future like that's definitely something i'm going to pay a little bit more heed to um but i mean there's also plenty of people that are already critical of anarchism and i don't think they'll have many <laughs> many problems fighting <laughs> issues to bring up so yeah. i haven't felt the need to, to dive into that as much uh but and in all know, fairness yeah. i i do think that you you made the right choice about we all as consumers already know what a capitalist and and existing barely postmodern modernish society is like and focusing energy on describing what are the uh, not capitalist socioeconomic systems is a good call and i think right and so i just i like to see the promise that is in there realized Mm -hmm. because i think that 
I think Eclipse Phase is, as a setting and as a game, wonderful. And I think it's got a huge amount of potential that is being realized, and I want to see it fully realized. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely be touching more on that in the future and possibly in some adventures as well. Like uh, if we have adventures that are kind of located in that autonomous areas, like we'll probably be making a little more effort to deal with some of the specific issues that you might have in those areas. Well, and Zen will tell you that I'm horrible about making sure there are no good guys in any situation. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> sure. But one of the things well, that it becomes less fun that way too. If yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> If at the end right. of the day someone looks back and goes, I made the choice my character absolutely would make and thought was right and goes, oh, but wait, that means. Yep. <laughs> that's yeah. the chance for self-growth out of a role-playing game that I think is the potential higher calling of some of these games. Is We're, we're in it to have fun. We're in it to explore ideas. And when those ideas make the player explore what the character experienced, that's a higher goal, which the depth and density of Eclipse Phase is well-suited to. Turning back, segueing back to our topic that you've so graciously joined us for. (laughs) As far as crunch, we've kind of mentioned that there is a definite heavier crunch, kind of what I'd call old-school crunch, to the game. Was there one particular change to the mechanics that you are most proud of or most enjoying? Hmm. Uh, maybe the uh, the thirty three sixty six rule we have. Um, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so just looking at ways to kind of evaluate levels of success in a percentile system, and I was playing around with a few different options for that, and uh, and a way to kind of yeah adjudicate having like superior successes or superior failures. And came upon that idea of just benchmarking things at 33 and 66, and uh, and that kind of worked well in playtesting. So yeah, yeah. So nice. in a percentile roll under system, if you succeed at rolling a 65, that means you're really good at it. It means that you are in a situation where you yourself are at a point where your rate of failure is far below what's expected, and that. I like the way that functions. There's there's a flow to that that I really enjoyed. Uh, mm-hmm. You can ask Zen. I sent him a message about that. And he <laughs> kind of like sent back the head scratching emoji. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've I, I get it, and and I I appreciate it. And it's it's one of those things. Like it's it takes a bit to get used to some of the changes, but they're 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 quite functional within the way everything is already set up mm-hmm. and it does yeah. it does help make things feel like there could be that oh my god remember that time when you know either success or failure you know that people have those stories that'll last for years so and th- that's how you get those and and that's where it was like at first i was just like I'm like I don't know about this, and then I started thinking about it more, and I'm like, this is this is elegant. <laughs> yeah, I like it most just because it's really easy to eyeball. 
You know, it's really easy to compare to 33 and 66. You don't have to do any math in your head. You yeah. Know? It's just right there. Yeah. Oh, and that's impressive for a game that is, you know, honestly, like you said, a, a little heavier on, on the crunch side of things for a modern game. And it's intuitive. People kind of understand, like you said, the one third, two third basis of that. And so definitely a kudos to you and, and everyone involved in kind of finding that what I think is a great balance between the old grognard heavier rule system and a very innovative and immersive uh, story system. Cool. Okay. Also so the pools and all of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get to all that stuff. That's fun. Okay. Hey. So, so we got two more questions here. Sure, okay. Sure. So why did you decide from the earliest days of this to make this release? under a creative commons instead of holding that IP super tight in house and having a regular copyright. Uh, so I, there's a few reasons for it. Uh, one is, you know, back when we were, we were first releasing, it was kind of when uh, there's, you know, lots of discussion and arguments online about how to handle piracy and stuff like that with digital publishing being fairly new back then. And, uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be blunt and say that I am personally kind of anti-intellectual property. <laughs> um, and uh, so, but, uh, you know, part of being anti-capitalist, I guess. But, um, you know, so on one hand, we need to, we need to have the ability to protect what we put out uh, from being uh it needs to be copyrighted in some way in order to, say, prevent some other publisher that is kind of evil coming along and, and doing what they want with it, right, uh, or, or things like that. So we want some protections. But on the other hand, we don't want to be, like, restricting our fans, uh, punishing them for, uh, you know, any sort of DRM or any type of watermarking or stuff like that that is used to prevent piracy. It just ends up kind of punishing people that use those products a lot of the time. And we didn't want to do anything like that. And in fact, we wanted to do the opposite. We wanted to encourage people to, uh, if they were like low income or just don't have the means to be able to uh, access the game anyway. And also with a new, back at the time, Eclipse Phase being a new science fiction prop, uh, game property, um, new games in general have a challenge breaking in and science fiction games even more so because science fiction games <laughs> yeah. require a bigger buy-in than fantasy games. And, uh, and one thing about the creative commons license that is great is that it encourages people to share it with their friends. And that works as, uh, you know, ad hoc, uh, marketing for you really. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, that helped us get word out about Eclipse Days through just word of mouth, friend to friend. And that really helped us get out there. Um, and so it kind of does all the things we want. You know, it, it, it helped us make our presence known. Uh, it made it accessible to people that didn't necessarily have the means. And it still lets us protect it, the property in some ways and keep control over it uh, in ways that we like uh, or need, um, given, given current copyright restrict and intellectual property restrictions in society. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, think- I know. <laughs> One of the things Zen will tell you is that I can go off on tangents, um, uh-huh. and I think you may appreciate that in 
looking at the physical design of the second ed book and the way that uh, the page reference to other parts are reminiscent of uh, you know current hypertext links, mm-hmm. it really struck me like kind of a, a Derrida stacking and the construction of meaning based on a pre-existing and kind of adjacent meanings of, of derived works. And so there's, I think, a really strong design aspect that plays into what you're describing as a theme for it being a game that questions the idea of the capitalist structure questions the idea of the use of intellectual property and it creates kind of questions for i think a reader just by virtue of how it was laid out mm-hmm. i wish adam was here to talk about that more uh, <laughs> i know because he does the layout i know that's why i was like i need i need adam on here <laughs> yeah, i'm sure you can take his brain about that but yeah he did a good, fantastic job with it definitely yeah the few times i get to like talk about layouts and, and philosophical but say french philosophical questions and the person who who would appreciate it is going to have to wait and find out i said it later <laughs> yeah well if he goes to origins we'll have to well i'll, I'll nail him down like i'll literally yeah. nail his foot to the floor and make him talk <laughs> I, I i will feed you questions about derrida stack theory and and the construction <laughs> of meaning if you need okay <laughs> we'll hook it up don't worry I, i'll get at him <laughs> <laughs> so but, uh, go ahead I was going to say Zen is, is, you know, kind of getting us close towards wrapping up and, and has a few questions left. And I want to add at least one other distinct kudo for anybody listening. One of the things I've loved since I was a youthful gamer way back when in, in the eighties and early nineties is tables of references or influences. Um, having that, that page or two or three of what people loved and inspired them to make the game. And there's a very, very strong example of that in Eclipse Phase in the Core Rulebook for two for the second edition. Two col- two pages, three columns, movies, TV shows, novels, comic books, nonfiction, the inspirations and where these ideas came from. And it, it made me kind of literally jump up and kind of click my heels together to see it. And for people listening, if you're on the fence about buying the book, buy the book. It's worth it for the reference alone. And I'll say add the TV show Dark Matter to the list because I think <laughs> it does a good job in a lot of instances on resleeving that sneaked its way in that uh, should be added. Oh, yeah. It's hard to remember everything to add to the <laughs> list. There's there's things we definitely left off. And uh, uh, there's things on here like – well. A lot. I put a lot of these in. A, a bunch of them came from other people that worked on the book, and so I use this list myself sometimes to go through and <laughs> find <laughs> things to read. Um, Nonfiction, the inclusion of actual philosophy and research materials, is a huge thing, and I think that's that enriches not just the book but the culture around a game in, in its totality. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we get to the last question. How can people get a hold of you guys if they've got questions they want answers to or they just want to chat? What is the best ways to get a hold of you guys? Uh, the number one best way is to email us at info at posthumanstudios.com. 
uh, that will bounce to everyone at Posthuman. Um, there's technically four of us, although only Adam and I are kind of the two kind of full-time people. Um, uh, but that will go to both of us. We'll see it. And uh, you're more likely to kind of get a quick response from one of us that way. Um, but we're reachable on almost any social media network. Uh, just search for Eclipse Phase or Posthuman Studios, uh, and you can message us that way. Okay. In the doodly doos, we've got the Twitter and Facebook to find at least that as a start. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just for listeners, click over, look at the show notes. We try to put them in there. But Zen does have one final question. Okay. Sure. And before we finish the episode, before we finish a wonderful interview and, and quasi-review of Eclipse Phase 2nd Edition, Zen, what do you have? All right. Rob, if you were yeah. a monster from any game... <laughs> what would you be? Oh man, a monster <laughs> from any game. Huh. <laughs> hmm. Uh, so I've been thinking about beholders a lot lately. Uh, yes, <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of complicated to go into, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, aside from them being you know, evil fascistic tyrants space tyrants uh beholders are pretty cool otherwise yeah uh, if they if they maybe had a different a bit of a different background uh but oh god there's so many monsters it'd be hard to choose from really um <laughs> yeah, i know there's beholder a t- for now all right okay <laughs> <laughs> well man it was great having you on and we'll go ahead and let yeah, you get out of here and Rob, thank you again for coming on. It's yeah, been great to talk to you. Yeah. Great to read the second edition of Eclipse Phase and see it coming out. And like Zen said, it's an impressive piece of work, and we're happy to see it out there. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys. All right, man. You can contact us or the show using Twitter, Facebook, or plain old email. Our Twitter accounts are at Zendead, at Jules Podcaster, and at 2050 Gardemanger. And the show's Twitter account is at Seize the GM. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Seize the GM. Or chat with us and other RPG lovers in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Seize the GM. You can email questions or comments to the show at admin at seizethegm.com. And if you have a few bills you want to send us, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. And we thank you. joining us for this episode of CCGM. Feel free to leave a comment about this episode on our webpage, www.seizethegm.com. Let the dice fall where they may, and we'll see you all again next week. Seize the GM is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. All copyrighted materials referenced herein are held by their respective owners. No infringement intended and no claim of ownership is implied. The music for the show is Dreaming Spirit off the album Ghost Machine by the Enigma TNG. 
His music is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license.